Hi there, and welcome back to The Few Show. Today I'm joined by Philippe of CrowdSec. Philippe graduated in 1999 as an IT security engineer from Epita in Paris, France. He then went on to found his first company around the same time and quickly oriented it towards penetration testing and high security hosting. He was also deeply involved in Magneto's community creation and animation in France and versed in e-commerce. He's even written four books on the topic. In 2020, he founded CrowdSec, a company editing an e e eponymous open source uh, massively multiplayer firewall, leveraging both IP behavior and reputation to create a community and tackle uh, mass scale hacking problems. He, his crushes will forever be IT security, dev security ops, and entrepreneurship. Thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure, David, my pleasure. So you mentioned that you just love entrepreneurship. How early did that, how early did that start in your life and how did you know that was, that was like your calling? Yeah, it was really cool, right. I mean, I was talking to my parents when I was 16 years old, telling them that I would totally see myself as an entrepreneur. So they made what every responsible parent would do, saying, finish your study first, right? And then we'll discuss about it. So I made my studies in Epita, which is an engineering school. Uh, so we're back now in 2000, right? So everybody is paid a hell lot because it's a 2000 bubble. There's not enough engineers anywhere, you know, mm. we're not anywhere near the quota needed. And um, I, say, I say to this wonderful salaries, no, thank you. I'm going to create my own company, uh, eat, uh, you know, very uh, standard pasta for two years and um, barely pay myself. Uh, so that was a weird choice at first, but I knew that it's something you have to do very early on if you can. Because later on, it's way more complicated. You know, you have family, loans, mortgage and stuff. You have constraints. You're not as free as you are, you know, just when you're exiting your studies. So, yeah, it started at 16 and I really literally uh, made my first company right after the, after the school. And for a little bit of background, what do your parents do and how did that influence your decision about entrepreneurship? Uh, actually, funny enough, they were absolutely not related to, uh, to this field of work. My, my father uh, was a doctor, a uh, generalist, so uh, in a small city, a small village. Um, and my mother was at home taking care of us. So uh, we had a, a great uh, opportunity to see and look around us, the world, and get uh, an international education and all. But as such, my parents were not deeply entrepreneurs. But now that you mention it, I realize that in my family and part of my family, all the others nearly are entrepreneurs, my uncle, aunties, cousin and all. So it seems maybe there's something in the genes. I, I wouldn't know about that. Did you, did you ever get advice growing up to become an entrepreneur or is that something like you felt like innate to you, independent of those influences in your family? No, I mean, I mean, actually, one of the things that motivated me a lot is freedom, uh, freedom of thinking, freedom of doing, freedom of, you know, uh, of all sorts. I knew it would be a complicated, eventually cluttered path where you would have to fight your way in, but I was fine with this. I told myself, okay, uh, 24, 25, you've got time, worst case scenario, you fail and you can, you know, bounce back to your career. Um, but um, no, not direct, no direct advices, no direct uh, mentor, um, and I, I missed that honestly. So now I'm doing a lot of mentorship, and I'm helping a lot others to create their own company or have the mindset. Even my employees now, you know, I tell them, I make them like uh, courses, uh, crash course studies and stuff around economics and how to create a company. 
because I think it's our legacy. It's, it's up to us to do this, to help them, you know, start this. Hmm. How, so when you first started your first job, you also found your company around the same time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was 24, just at the exit of my studies, actually. How did you balance those two in terms of time and sanity? Well, the, the school I made was smart enough to let us be entrepreneurs as much as we want. Uh, so uh, they said for your end um, uh, training period, uh, you're supposed to go into a company and spend like six months in this company and, you know, learn your ABC there. Thing is, they, they told me you will do nine months instead of six. You can dedicate three months only to the regular project you would have to qualify your study but you can spend then six months is creating your company and you will have a separate track uh, for the evaluation based on company creation and you will explain us what you want to do why and how so the honestly the the, the the school made a lot for us and let us be entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs and test ourselves and you know it was a brilliant uh, decision of theirs because now i think we're something like probably a thousand entrepreneurs coming from this from this school so by by being entrepreneur friendly they helped a lot really and how do they evaluate i guess so i think entrepreneurship is one of those weird things where it usually takes a while for like initial traction so how does a school evaluate whether you're like a, a good entrepreneur or not it's hard for them to say what what they know by then is that there's a huge demand and that i'm adventurous enough and uh that you know i will make my connections but is there didn't really come from the from the school as such because you know in the school you get teachers and students so likely not customers so what happened is when i went out of school i started in a very 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 slow motion we were three of us and it took, it took us years to, to start it, to kickstart. We had no growth hacking trick. Mm -hmm. uh, we had no uh, deep connection to the market or, you know, um, deep pockets or, or whatever to make advertisement. So basically it took us years to, to really start off, to take off. And we realized quickly that doing these um, uh, um, missions, one after the other, you know, pen testing, pen testing, pen testing, uh, it's cool, but you have to hunt every other day uh, some new uh, some new customers. So basically, no recurring revenue was a very very bad model by then, extremely extremely bad. So we decided to create a product, and just to have something that would be half recurring somehow. And um, we were by then uh, located in a company doing uh, trading, okay, on financial markets, and. What they were doing was really interesting to us, and we had two separate floors. We were on the upper floors, and they were on the lower floors. And we started to click together, and we were like, but you're doing a job that machines could do, right? Because you're analyzing curves and, you know, tracing train lines and supports and stuff like that. Uh, it's called technical analysis. So why is it not a machine doing this for you? And they were like, well, yeah, smart test. You're not the first one saying this. Guess what? Nobody did. Right. Bloomberg tried, they did not. And many other tried and they did not provide any meaningful to like, really? That's something we can tackle. Mm. So on this side, we decided to, um, it was very pretentious of ours actually, because it's a really complicated problem. So actually we solved it, but it took us, uh, yeah, uh, a year and a half, something like this. And we spent most of what we had as, as pairing with the company and we created a product called Trend Lines. And this thing actually worked. 
worked pretty well. Actually, we could like you know prolong uh, channels, have this resistance and support zone, make all the classical analysis, and we would show the trader only the meaningful stuff that he was looking for, like you know some parameters uh, in the stock market, and it was it worked. So the guy said, you know what? Go, you've got my blessing. I'm going to introduce you to uh, major tier one customers like uh, Trading Desk, right? We're like, wow, fantastic. So we went there, we installed the computer, and we trained the, the trader uh, on the software. And we're like, wow, that's impressive. It's still buggy beta, but that's still impressive. I came back to the office, and I saw those three planes crashing into towers. I was like, what's happening? You know, and you're in a trading desk, so it's, they have you screen, so you see those oversized mm. jets crashing in the Twin Towers. You're like, what's this? It's stunning. And you realize the economy is screwed up. Like it takes you like half an hour listening to the guys going ballistic, selling everything they can, watching the stock market crash like hell. And you're like, oh, damn, that doesn't look good for us. Mm. And it did not. So we crashed actually <laughs> with, the, with the World Trade Center. I noticed that you used the word we versus I. How many, what is the we, like how many people was we? This we was about like four persons by then, okay. very tiny guys. Uh, we had to disband uh, this unit and we restarted from ground up. So we had to uh, pay our debts because we had debts to create this software. So we paid our debts and we switched a bit the model. We were like, okay, you know, hunting every other day, the new, uh, the new contract is not so safe for us. Besides, we are not really good at, um, at this, so we're not really salesperson. So we decided to work with our existing customers. Okay, since we're doing pen testing and you know us for that and we're good at that, why not trust us into hosting defensively your machines and have high security hosting as much as we can? And some of them were like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. We, we'd like that. So we decided to have one, two, three, four servers. And you know, things get rolling, you get recurring revenues and you start building up a different strategy. And uh, we switched to 90 plus percent uh, uh, recurring revenues. Pen tests shrunk a lot in terms of uh, incomes. And um, at some point later on, we are in 2014 or 2012, we decided to create the first high security uh, environment for hosting. Sounds like it's very late. It sounds like it should have been done way before, but actually it was complicated and nobody had a real good solution for that. So we came up with a solution, built some more uh, monthly recurring revenue and got acquired in 2016. So what made, why is it so rare or why did, why do you feel like it not exists prior? Well, that's the point that I, I couldn't advise anyone, you know, start marking a, a path, a line in your career, be good at it, know your uh, network, know the professionals, know the customer, know everyone around that and you will start to see things appearing like loopholes things that have not been covered yet you know mistakes or stuff that are uh, that should be on the market but are not and the more you dig into a direction the better you get at it so if you can have a mind that is half marketing and half technical which is my case then you you come to realize okay i know security i know what's missing I know why eventually it's missing. I know how to do it without hurting myself too much and uh, maybe get a profit out of it. And it's exactly what we did with this new company. When you see this opportunity, you're like, okay, so take my current uh, company. We saw that the software was aging. 
This software was used a lot, but it's aging and not so well. You know, it's 16 years old, it's slow, it's not adapted to modern environments, modern clouds. So we were like, we could redo this, right? But there's something else that we should put together as a community aspect, you know, share the aggressions that the machines are getting, the IP that are aggressive, share them across our network. A bit like a ways of firewalls, right? We would share uh, aggressions, IP, ag aggressive IP, instead of uh, position, speed, and potential problem on the road. And so you bring something new, you transform an older concept, and you include it mm -hmm. with something uh, that is, you know, different to make it extremely powerful. So if you look at it in another way, there were uh, rockets shooting things in the sky before SpaceX, right? But the great concept of SpaceX is making rocket reusable. They make rockets at the basic. It's a better rocket, faster rocket, heavier rocket, whatever. But it's a rocket, right? But it's reusable. And that's a whole difference with everything that's been made before. Look at Slack. Slack connects pretty much every business in the world nowadays. But it's just a reinvention of something we had while I was studying, which called IRC. It's just an old system that allowed people to chat together that has been reinvented 10 times ever since. But say Slack nailed it, right? It connected the dots. It's not only about talking, it's about integrating all your applications and making, making it API first. And that's a revolution on some old concept. Mm -hmm. We discussed together, but also the robots and the apps are gonna talk with you as same. And it's about this constant creation of value based on older concepts that you knew, mixed with something totally new or totally different. And I think it's a good recipe to success. One of the things about that concept is that the timing also needs to be right. So I, I used to work at Uber and I, I don't even think Uber was the first of its kind. There were probably like half a dozen at least prior companies that tried to do the same thing, but the timing wasn't right. Uh, cell phone penetration wasn't at a level where it made sense. Cellular service wasn't yet reliable. Um, you need a massive network effect to bring two sides of the marketplace together. So how do you know as an entrepreneur that, or what gives you intuition that you think the timing is right to build a certain business around an idea versus choosing to wait or feeling it's too late? That's a spot on question. And if you think about it, the best example would be Steve Jobs, which is who is considered as one of the most successful marketeer in the world because he was definitely a marketing guy. He tried to create this iPad uh, 20 years before. It was called Newton. Mm. and it failed miserably, like a big time. So the guy was right in absolute value, but wrong in terms of the timing. And then he reinvented the stuff uh, 20 years after with better technology, smaller, compact, blah, 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 better screen and all, and it took off. So you're right. I mean, marketeers are often right, but too early or too late. So when do you know it's the right time? Well. In my case, it, I don't have any absolute recipe, but in my case, it was a, when people started to say, ah, that should exist already. Mm. You're like, really? But it does not. Like, no, no, you didn't search enough. Okay? So I searched a lot, really a lot. I didn't find it. I was like, okay, that's the right time. It should exist. Everyone thinks it does already exist, and it does not. Or it does not enough to be an obvious thing, like Uber, you know? So if Uber was existing, but not known enough, it would not be considered a de facto solution to the problem. And you would still have a chance to get in the market. So here, everybody was like, it, it probably already exists. It's so obvious, you have to have something that does exist. Okay, but mm -mm, it did not. And the way I knew it is because I'm after a network effect. 
as well. I mean, right. as Facebook, as Google, as Waze, as everyone. But um, so this Metcalf flow makes it so that if it exists already, it's anything but discrete. You should know about it because network effects are not discrete in essence. You know, there are a lot of people involved, so right. it's on the radar. So that's that's how I knew it was the right time. How many people did you interview to figure to get that feedback in terms of, hey, I wish this existed already? Um, so the first point was not asking the people that I knew in security because mm -hmm. they, they are like minded. So they would, you know, bias my marketeer yeah. view of the problem. They would they would drag my engineer uh, brain into it. And I would like self convince myself, which is really bad. So I went for a final mind because you have Kuttner is a very successful entrepreneur. He created a uh, co-created Magento uh, hmm. with Roy Ruby in US and Magento was a huge success. So we kept uh, we kept uh, friendship over time and I, I called him and I was like, and he's not into cybersecurity at all. He's still into, uh, you know, e-commerce. And I was like, you have, if I do this, does it talk to you? He's like, yeah, uh, but that already exists. I'm like, sure, drop me a name, I'd be delighted. He's like, no, it has to exist, it's obvious. Yeah, but it does not. So we discussed in and out. And then I discussed with another uh, hosting company. And the guy is, a, is also half engineer, half marketeer. I was like, would you use it? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And actually, it, it should be uh, in my network already. And I know it doesn't exist. So I was like, okay. And I interviewed other people in the market, uh, people that are marketing mainly. And we started to dig into this and I asked always the same question. Would you use it? Does it exist? Uh, do you know anything that is close? And then I started a list, a list, you know, raw, stupid Google shit with 120 uh, different companies that would be doing similar things somehow and never found out anyone doing exactly the same. And I was like, OK, I hold this one. That's the right one. Let's go. Let's, it's all in. One of the challenges about the security world is I think people undervalue it until there's a problem that arises. So it's kind of like insurance, like people don't really think about insurance unless they're like forced to have insurance because it's more of a back of mind thought. But at the same time, it's the thing that pre prevents like catastrophes. So how do you go and translate this idea of security into a willingness to pay on the client's behalf? Like getting someone to pay for something that may or may not have tangible benefits in the short term, I imagine has unique challenges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not in, in mankind uh, way of thinking, right? If you look at it as a parallel, which is like uh, climate change, something that is long term somehow. So we are yeah. not able to solve it and commit in the short term. Uh, so it's, it's true as well for cybersecurity, at least it was. We used to have a quote which was like something like, it's a f cybersecurity is the first priority after all the others. And that has hold true for 20 years nearly. Now everything's changed. The market is ripe. Uh, people know that if they don't do what's necessary, they will die in a full pain, right? So, or at least really suffer a hell lot and pay something they should not pay if they did the job properly. So they start to think ahead of it. The next thing is, how do you make them pay? And that's an excellent question because the value has to be so obvious that, you know, it's a reflex. So I'm on a model that is called the SaaS low touch, right? I guess you're all familiar with this, but just to summarize it, it means we don't have any sales. Uh, the product is self-explanatory. And if you like it, you can buy a premium version of it uh, for a small fee, recurring fee monthly. 
it's a bit like Dropbox. I think one of the biggest success in uh, low touch mode was Dropbox. So you can use the free version and have like one or two gig for free. And if you want to go 10 or 20 gigs, you would have to pay something like $10 a month. So this SaaS low touch mode has, has a lot of benefits and pros. So for example, you don't have to have sales internally. And sales are, are cool people, but complicated to handle. Trust me, I've been one and I, I, I had a lot in my companies. And it's not so easy to you know, keep the, their mood up, uh, balance the salary and, and uh, bonuses, um, always have them on the breach of the new contract. You know, they have to smell blood every other day. It's, it's really specific. I prefer to do marketing because marketing is long-term. Communication is long-term. Yes, it's slower, far slower, but it's, it's a wave that lasts for super long. When you start a CEO now, you will get results in the year from now, but this result will last for 10 years with the same initial investment. And you cannot really be an entrepreneur if everything you do is thinking short-term. You have, hmm. as a CEO, you have to project yourself in short, mid and long-term. And as soon as you can, switch to mid and long-term because all the decision you will do and all the difference you will make in your daily business is about you being the probably the sole person in the company able to think on the long-term or mid-term at least. So it's as low touch for those reasons. And what we do is we say, okay, you have a free product, you like it, what do you get for 50 bucks a month? You know, finally, the product is doing the job. Well, you get better security, you get to know if you've been compromised in the past or if you, if you are aggressing others around yourself, uh, if you are the targeted, the target of an, a specific attack, so you are targeted but not the others. You get to have compliance dashboards and stuff you can show to your C-level guys above you. So a lot of cool things uh, that you can fine tune in the app, which for $50 a month is a bargain, in cybersecurity at least. And um, we have a, like an enterprise plan, which is uh, way more expensive because we have very large tier one company uh, like Godaddy in the US that are interested into using the product. So obviously they need more services or at least more features. Um, and that is uh, something we've integrated in a plan. But I don't want anything that is not scalable. That's another problem. You know, If you want to be able to raise funds fast and be efficient at it, you have to show that your business model can scale, not linearly. So for X customer, you, right. you have to have Y guy uh, ahead of them, in front of them. Here, what we want is to be a software editor, 100%, meaning with like 30 people, we could serve like a million person. So to mm -hmm. do this, you cannot, you have to make arbitration. You cannot do services like integration. You cannot do a consultancy. You cannot do a supervision. You cannot do training and so on. So the next thing you have to do is turn those problems into a value. And how to do this? Then you create an ecosystem around yourself. And tell this ecosystem, I'm a software editor, 100% pure, right? So I'm not going to do this mm -hmm. job. I'm going to delegate this job to you guys. It's all around you. It's me bringing business to you for free. For free. Mm -hmm. You have to do a good job. This is the only thing I, I'm asking from you. So by getting rid of this problem, I'm creating a ring of a, a ring of business around myself, which pushes me forward and further. And this is doable because the, the VCs then they understand that, okay, it got rid of this scalability problem, right? So maybe it will be monetizing f later on or six months further than expected, but there are no uh, ceiling that it cannot cross because of this man uh, power uh, issue. 
So when it comes to marketing, I think you're definitely on the spot when the fact that you want something that lasts indefinitely. How do you know when the right time to transition from more like, I guess, outbound sales and like short term into the long term? If you have, I don't know, either debt as a company or you like building the product itself is like high cost. Like, how do you know that raising money is the right solution versus, um, I guess, bootstrapping for longer? How do you decide that personally? Yeah, well... A lot of people bootstrap, but I'm 46 years old, so there are pros and cons to this. The first one is I, I, I'm not here for human adventure. Uh, you know, I've got a wife, I've got a kid. Human adventure is my family, right? I don't need like a human <laughs> adventure in the job. I'm delighted to work with people I like. I'm delighted to spend time with them, but I've got mercenaries. They know what they're here for. So they are paid, well paid, mm-hmm. and we need to create a large company that will be successful. So first of all, it's a different mindset. Um, the second thing is sometimes you need to burst, right? You want to uh, go in exceedingly fast to your target because otherwise you will get some copy me project uh, that can you know, nag you. So here we are after a network effect, meaning bootstrapping a network effect is extremely hard. So I know Facebook, for example, did it, but it's, it's not so often successful. So the logical mm. path for me was to get money to help communication and marketing to kick off and start the snowball, right? And once so you're snowballing, you're uh, spending far less money into the long-term and the mid-term adoption because it's kind of rolling by itself. And then you can spend mm-hmm. money into creating monthly recurring revenue by advertisement or accelerating this or that initiative um, that you would consider critical at a given moment in time, you know, like uh, crunching a bit uh, on the marketing side. As for the product, um, my position was like, I, I've got a, a really, really good team. It's, they are super experts in their, in their area. So I'm trusting you hundred percent. So when my CTO tells me it's not ready, it's not up to me to, you know, nudge him and say, go faster, go further, go whatever. I have to handle the problem differently. So <clears throat> when, when that was obvious that we needed something like a year and a half to really create a, a solid, strong, a rock solid product. Um, I thought to myself, okay, let's, let's do marketing and burn money in marketing in the meantime, you know, brand recognition, uh, adoption and all. So, uh, that's where we paralyze the effort. And when we're both, both ready, like the marketing has done its job and the brand is recognized and the CTO did his job and we have a beautiful product, then we can start monetizing. How long was that time? Um, it took us something like, uh, in something like six months, we had a alpha product that we tested with friends. We had a beta product with four more months. Uh, around a full year, we had a finalized product dry enough to be used in production. And a year and a half later, uh, all together, so 18 months, we now are starting to roll out our premium and paid features. So it was kind of short, but it's an ex- it's a very experimented team. So I would say on average, I would rather go for two years than one year and a half. So the way we rose our first funds, because I guess it's part of the next question, right? <laughs> so we gathered our network around us and there's a good growth hacking trick here. You know what, if you're a bit experimented and have a bit of network, dump this network uh, you have and use some f- software that costs something like a hundred bucks a year or something like this that would retrieve the email associated with the name in LinkedIn because most of the time you don't have the email in LinkedIn, right? So you do this with all the founders. Right. 
and you will get something like, I don't know, three to 4,000 contacts. You uh, narrow them down to maybe 200, and you say, okay, this date will organize our uh, business angel round, right? So come, we'll make a demonstration of the product, we'll show you what it is uh, about, we'll show you the, the plan and everything. Join us, and if you feel like, then you can you know, step in the company. And so that's why you make one presentation, you gather all the contacts together. The one that are interested will probably toss uh, at you some few uh, tens of thousands of uh, dollars. And then you gather all of them into a holding called an SPV, a special purpose vehicle that would take share in your company. Meaning you don't have to have, I have 17 business angels, right? But I don't have 17 people uh, during my board meeting. I have one person that is representing them uh, that is the head of the SPV. And that was extremely efficient. Mm -hmm. So we, we gained time a lot with this uh, kind of uh, organization. Mm. And how, how did the head of the SPV like, arise? Is it just the person who contributed the most? Or how, how was it based on democracy? Yeah. Um, how <laughs> you know, I don't believe in democracy. I'm, I'm of the opinion of uh, Churchill. You know. Democracy is the worst uh, uh, governance system except for all the others. Uh, <laughs> but in, for companies, same yeah. with capitalism. For companies, I really don't believe it's a, it's a good option. It should be a enlightened okay. dictatorship, right? So you listen to everyone. Okay. Everyone has a, a word in this specialty and a field of expertise. You are the one to decide in the end with your co-founders. And ultimately, if you don't agree together, then you are the sole one as a CEO deciding. That's all. So. As much as you can keep this way of working, it works pretty well. If everyone has a say into something, it's just the beginning of the mess. So, <laughs> and I experimented this a lot. So, here we had uh, um, someone that organizes SPV because it's not so easy to roll out. You know, you have a lot of paperwork, you have a lot of things to, to care for. And I guess in America, it's the same. You have SEC that is regulating all of this so that there is not another con artist trying to, you know, write your to take your money. So here is the same. And the, this company organized itself. I knew the guy for a while and he said, okay, can I have a seat in the board? And obviously he has one. So he's representing all the 17 mm -hmm. people, but I keep contact directly with them, with all my investors on a monthly basis. I send a newsletter um, that is, you know, the insider thing. You go no filter. It's good for yourself as a CEO, and it's good for your um, for your LPs or associates or business angels because they get to know how the company is doing on a regular basis. And I saw way too often um, tunnel effect. You put money and you don't know what's happening until the company is either broke or sold, which is not so cool. So our CEO also developed a back office f specifically for our um, uh, partners so that they can see the price of their share, uh, the budget, the last decision of the board, uh, the KPIs of the company and stuff, uh, whenever they want, they just have to connect. It's a real-time thing, uh, it's dynamic. So it's really cool. And everyone said, okay, well, that's, that's really uh, a nice thing to have. We really appreciate. And I think when we saw then the VCs that uh, followed us in the sitting round, they were like, wow, that's a very mature company already. You're, you're treating your, your partners extremely well and you have a view over pretty much everything so we like it it, it really played in our favor mm. is that something you is that like um 
a dashboard of sorts, something that you built in-house, or was there a common tool? Uh, our, our CEO is really good at this. He, he used Blockio and automated a lot with Google Functions and uh, Google Sheets and stuff like that. Mm. So everything is reporting centrally. He created something like, I don't know, I think now we have 17 boats, something like this, that are dealing with all the errands. Uh, another, another advice here, mm. focus on what matters. Focus on your added value. So first of all, define what is your added value, but focus on your added value. Because if you are spending time with C-levels, uh, handling, I don't know, wages, uh, reporting KPIs, budget, stuff like that, you're losing your time. This all should be automated, fire and forget. Yeah, you will spend more time at first creating those tools, but on the long run, it's such a tremendous uh, um, efficient uh, usage of your time because now we are not dealing with this. If someone takes a train, for example, they just scan the ticket, send it on Slack, and there's a boat catching it and putting it into the account, accountancy system, and that relates it automatically with our uh, banking system. And so, and everything is then dropped at our uh, accountant place so that they can, you know, make the, uh, the account uh, properly end of the month. So all of this is automated as much as we can. And if something is not, it's just because we had no time so far, but it will be soon. That's really the motto. So 17 boats are handling the daily errands. When I talk to other founders, the most common answer I get in terms of how often they update their investors is around quarterly. What makes you it's choose to go monthly? monthly it's dynamic. So any of my investor can go anytime okay, he wants and see his dashboard uh, being updated. So here's the point. Every quarter, the other companies would have to compare you know, compare the figures, uh, draw uh, charts and have their KPIs and uh, update their budgets and stuff. Here, we don't have to do that. It's just, you know, we go in board meeting, say, okay, let's pull the latest and that's all. We all have it. And we have a button to just send it to everyone anytime. So it was a decision that was kind of obvious for us, but because we had someone that could do it. If you don't want, to, if you don't have someone that could do it, I would advise you to, to get some freelancers to do this for you because it's such a, a, a tremendous, uh, efficient uh, use of your time. It's, it's crazy. So we just decided some, it's being polite with our investors, if you want. They have to know where they stand. So one of them decided, for example, when we went for the seed round, that he would sell his shares. Not that he didn't trust us, because in six months, we multiplied the valuation of the company by time four, time 4.5, something like this. So it's extremely honest performance. <laughs> but he had to create a new company. He wanted to create a new company. So he made the most obvious choice. He sold what was working, got his money out, and created another company for himself. Great. Smart. So, um, but he knew on the spot how much he earned, what taxation he would get and all. So now this guy is still in contact mm. with us and praising us and talking about us in networks and stuff, saying that was the best experience I ever had. So the next time I want to onboard an investor, hmm. he knows that we are, you know, transparent, fair, and so on. So that's a real advertisement for us. It's really cool. I noticed that on your LinkedIn, you mentioned that you have a certificate for uh, Reed Hoffman and Chris, Chris Ye's uh, blitz scaling. Um, do a lot of your concepts and how you lead your company today run from that? Or is that just one of many data points you use for how you choose to approach CrowdSec? So this blitzscaling thing, I was interested in because I was I was really willing to know whether we should blitzscale or not at some point. Um, and the answer was in their training. It was really was nicely done. 
I had no immediate reason to do this because I had no immediate threat, right? Mm. So blitzscaling is really when you have a, a immediate threat or you need to accelerate fast enough not to be uh, crushed by the others. So we had no such thing here. Uh, we had time to develop ourselves. It was part of the plan. I cannot stress how important it is to have a plan. You draw it to the latest uh, details because this will be the first victim of the war, right? No plan uh, ever survived the first contact with the enemy. No plan of an operation ever survived the first contact of, with the enemy. Mm. Any military can tell you, any CEO uh, can tell you, but I would not get up in the morning without having a plan because you know, then I can adjust it, modify it, uh, and go where I think it's good or know when there's a discrepancy compared to what I expected and why and analyze it. So, and also the strengths of the plan and the strengths of how uh, convinced you are with your plan, it's, it's sweating of you, right? People see you and say, okay, this guy has a plan. Whether he will make it or not, he has a plan. So he's without any second thought trying to uh, 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 stick to it and modifying just when necessary. Some VCs were scared by that. They were like, hmm, but what if it doesn't uh, unfold the way you think it will? Will you be able to pivot or you know, do something different or adjust? Yes, of course. I mean, come on, 25 years of experience, 50 years if you take all the founders, of course we would adjust. But if you're scared because we have a plan, you're not our investor because it's, it's a deep mindset for us. Um, and the one we got here, they are like, yeah, we understand your play. We think you can do it. We would like to have our uh, touch in this saying, maybe this is weak and you could probably deal with this a bit differently. And they were right, actually. I think they were right, we'll see. Um, but then it's easy. You say, okay, my plan stated that I should be here. I'm here. Any question? No. End of the board. <laughs> really? I mean, and I'm like, when they're not asking when do I make money? Because they know when I will make money. And they're not entitled to ask if I will make money earlier because I have a fucking plan and I stick to it. <laughs> right, right, so right. There's no stress here. And the day I'm not within the KPIs I gave them, they're 100% entitled saying, Philip, maybe you need to revise your stuff. Maybe there's a problem. Can you explain around it? And I, I feel it's... Um, it's a commitment that is important because those people, they have LPs and they have spent like millions in our company. So we are, we owe them answers if we fail and they owe us freedom if we succeed. See what I mean? How often has it been that you had to, or you, you submitted a report where the KPI, your current KPIs uh, weren't in line with what you previously planned and uh, how, or I guess how often does that happen and how do you handle it in terms of communication and how do they respond? So, Funny enough, we had a real crisis in the early, early this year. We're like, we were behind. We are lagging in adoption. I was like, hmm, why? So we started to roam around the marketing and you know, brainstorm a lot to find new communication channels, new strategy, and so on and so forth. Actually, the reality was that we, are, we were not counting properly. So we were on par with our objectives, like literally one-to-one, -one, but there was a cloud function that was not registering when two events occurred in the same second, I see. right? So if two, two users or three or more were registering in the same second, then this, all the one after the first one would not be counted, accounted for. So we were like 2000 late 
and I was like, wow, we really need to do something different because it's, it's really bad. I, can, I cannot live with this. It's, mm. it's, we're like 20% late. It's a lot. So we started to, you know, rush adoption and make new things. And that was really good. And we started to bounce our adoption up again until we found out that there was a mistake in the KPIs. And we're like, okay, so where do we stand now? And we stand something like 10% above our objective in terms of uh, adoption. So I granted people uh, some vacations, relaxation time and stuff, because there's no need to go faster even. Uh, I'm, not in, I'm not that kind. But in the meantime, I had to explain to my uh, associates, uh, founders, uh, employees, and uh, investors that, yeah, we have an issue. <laughs> so the strategy was the following. We are at the very beginning of this network effect. We, are mm. at the very, we have 10,000 users, 11,000 users. So it's, it's, sorry, it's, it's a lot, but it's still small. So you still have like local um, uh, um, extremum uh, effects. So meaning if one company adopts from one day to another your software and deploys a thousand machines, you're way above your objective. If for whatever reason there is, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, holidays in the US and they stop deploying machines, you've got a dip in your adoption. So we started to track every event that would have potentially led to delays in adoption. We found some that were quite meaningful. Mm. You know, for example, in US, end of November, uh, it's, it's not easy to get uh, to get people uh, <laughs> concentrated on what you're doing. You know, <laughs> so and, and in other countries as well, in France, in Germany, which are the three main countries we're working with, there are always stuff that could slow you down. And end of the year is really a slow, slow time. And with the COVID crisis, on top of that, so. We got out with it. The guy were like, okay, they scrutinized this KPI. And when we could prove that we were on track finally, they were like, okay, no problem. What do you think would have happened if you weren't able to recover in a, like, I guess, reasonable time frame? Like, what do you think is reasonable for investors to do if, because for example, like, I think your story is probably one of, I'm not even sure if it's a minority or majority, but there are a lot of cases where startups fail, at least in the US. 90-ish percent of startups fail within the first five years. And uh, how would you handle that if you were like in that scenario? So um, if I was really, really late for already the time frame would be something since we're in seeding zone, it would be, I guess I would start to have rounds around th a quarter later, maybe two maximum, so three to six mm -hmm. months. They would start to say, mm -mm, you're not on the right track. So we took this investment fund because they are not the type uh, to make a write-off, you know, say that's over, uh, this one is failed, next. They, are, um, they know we have a, a long-term plan, and maybe I, I, should have, I should explain more about that because it makes sense in, in, for the answer, for the global answer. So I'm after a unicorn. Everybody will tell you they're after a unicorn, right? That's a goal of every startup in the world, but there's a good reason for that. If you look at ways, it was sold because it had uh, the real-time map of traffic all around the world, right? And Google had a, a heap of cash. And what they strive for is data. So they exchange heap of cash against a data generator real-time. This is exactly what we're doing. We are generating real-time the hacking map on the internet. Where are the hackers, right? So that has to cost, that has a value. That has to cost something in the eyes of someone. So. Our, our end game, our play, is at some point, one of these big companies will say, okay, we buy you. 
this gold mine is is too big not to buy now and it will be too expensive later so later, how yeah so the thing is in the meantime so by then important we won't we won't screw our community because our software is open source meaning if those guys start to monetize aggressively what we've done and what they committed for this this community they can switch to another uh, they can fork it and do their own stuff uh, on the side and nobody mm -hmm. would have a say in this so uh, if they are protected uh, it's, it's important to highlight that but at some point someone mm -hmm. will want to acquire us in the meantime we will have monthly recurring revenue that would push further and further the fundraiser if we have too few monthly recurring revenue we will have to dilute ourselves earlier and probably for a lesser value if we have right. a good monthly recurring revenue we can start eventually get loans uh, against them and potentially push further and further the delay where which we would have to raise funds again so basically now that we have seeded there's no reason we would hard crash why that because we're not after absolute monthly recurring revenue in the short term right the play is to have a billion in five years so they are patient first off second thing is when a vc throws five million dollars at you if they have any chance of not losing it they will do so what they will do is help you raise the next round mm -hmm. you know push the potato to the next guy and that's that's uh, that's quite classical so maybe you won't get the best of the valuations you can but as long as you're not a hard crash that's fine so here as long as we have adoption and network of users and so on people that trust us and businesses that want to pay we are not really at risk so yeah that's that's my answer i don't know if it really fits your question no, no i'm just here for any honest answer and i think i'm satisfied with that how do you uh, how do you discern for I guess one of the things I like to do with this um, podcast is to help people uh, make the transition from corporate into entrepreneurship and I think if you're in the right position you have the opportunity to raise like and I think you've raised a, a substantial amount of seed funding probably more so than most people have the capacity to do so how would you encourage someone who I guess is in the early stages of their life or their career to uh, make that jump and also be able to um, without having to um, get stuck with the either giving up too much equity or taking on too much debt? Mm. Uh, it's a lot of preparation already. Um, you will change your lifestyle a lot. You have to be able to endure a lot of stress. Stress is uh, you know, the pinnacle of your problems. Uh, you will have to do sport. You, know, you have to change your lifestyle, most likely. Uh, second thing, prepare well. When you leave your company, you will have probably no safety net. So if you can get one, create one. If you can't, at least create a huge network before leaving, right? Uh, now, equity versus debt is, um, this is a bit of the Coca-Cola paradigm, right? It's better to have like 1% of Coca-Cola than 100% of my own company. So the thing is, you want to create something big enough at a rate fast enough and if you end up having like 10% in this huge win in the end, that's fine. That's really fine. In, if on the other end, you're too conservative and you don't use your capital um, to get the funds, get the tenants and get the speed, you will likely get stranded, uh, stranded in the sand. And you, yeah, you will have 30% or 40% of your company, but the company would, would be much less valuable. So consider your capital, your shares, like um, an acceleration factor. So use them wisely 
dilute wisely and dilute the less you can, but don't hesitate to do so if it brings you some acceleration uh, uh, of any sort. So here, for example, after the, this round, I still own 35% of my company, right? So I'm not, I don't have the majority anymore, which is not a problem. Anyway, as pro people should know that you don't govern companies that do fundraisers with shares. You govern them with seats at the board. That's why the board is so important and you keep uh, hearing and uh, listening about these boards, right? And board membership is because even if I have 35 or would I have even 60% of my company, that would not be enough to drive it 100% uh, by myself. The board is a representative uh, entity that decide for the company uh, behavior uh, based on voices, one vote per seat, roughly, right? And the president usually has a good own vote, like two votes if there's a, you know, 50-50. So even though you would have like, for example, 10% of your company, you can still be the, the biggest decider in your company being the board member of the president, for example, you know, with a golden vote and all. You can have a board that is favorable to you and vote for, for what you want to, the company to go for. So mm. always decorrelate the shares and the votes and the governance. It's not the same. So now that we speak about shares, I would advise to keep, you know, the tracks is like, you would limit yourself about 20 to 25% each round, roughly. That's a good, you know, rule of thumb. So for business angel, you, you drop 20% of the company. For the seeding round, you drop 20% of the company shares. For, you dilute everyone off 20%. Uh, so everyone goes lower by 20% in his own uh, shares. Uh, and then for the A round as well, 2025, and then B round and C round and later rounds, are, it's more complicated because it, it entirely depends on how profitable you are, how fast growing your monthly revenues are and so on and so forth. So uh, there's no rule of thumb past the A round. You mentioned earlier that one of the ways you can de-risk yourself and I guess build a safety net is by building a large network. How would you, uh, how have you personally done this or how would you recommend someone do this if they are trying to build that safety net and they don't have the means to accumulate, I guess, a financial safety net? Well, you don't have to suffer from creating a company or, or there's a problem somewhere, right? You could go the bootleg, uh, the bootstrap, sorry, uh, um, direction. Sorry, you, you see, <laughs> that's the, the bootstrap direction, which is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm full of admiration for those guys, honestly, really. Uh, but they are suffering, most of them, from uh, financial stress uh, above the stress you already have from creating a company. And I rather have uh, investor stress than financial stress, you know. So yeah. I depot those from the bootstrap, you know, uh, financial stress to the investor stress. I have to satisfy an investor, but I know there will be food in the dish, so which is already good. So raise funds early on. If you're good enough, you think you have a, a decent idea and uh, the way to deliver it, uh, there's no reason your family, your friends, the family and friends of your co-founders and, and all these people around you, potentially uh, former customers, former uh, boss of yours, would not invest into you. Or there's something wrong. Because if people can invest okay. early in the company and they don't do, it's because you have a problem in your business plan or idea or whatever. Because it's always, always, always the best moment to invest when your business angel. Yes, the risk are high, but the reward is like a t time 20 times 30 sometimes. So 
if you see defiance, it's probably you have a problem with your concept. So first of all, you know, make it hmm. super dry, super lean, super clean before even attempting to present it to anyone. Rehearse a lot and don't be alone. Never be alone. That, I mean, succeeding by yourself is close to impossible. There are a few people doing this, very, very few. You're not Jeff Bezos, okay? You're not Elon Musk. We are not those guys. And it's not a problem. I'm fine with not being Elon Musk. He's, he's admirable by many, many ways, but I'm fine not being Elon Musk. I don't want to work 60, uh, 70 hours a week. I want to see my, my kid grow and so on. So have people around you that are not the same as you because it's another problem, right? So if you're alone in the cockpit, mm -hmm. you will feel lonely. You, it, it's a terrible loneliness and you will suffer the stress all alone. If you are, uh, I don't know, a marketing guy, take a tech guy and an administration uh, guy, for example, or girl, obviously. Um, organize yourself so that you cover different strengths and different areas so that you don't overlap and get to fight with each other and you won't feel alone. So rather have someone you barely know as an associate, but being two than being alone. And obviously, if you can take people you trust and you like, and I would be fine working with you on the long run. Uh, friends is not so much of a problem, I would say. I'm working with friends. Uh, I lost one friend to business over 20 years. And I, I have worked with probably six or seven friends, different. So you can work with friends, be careful, you know, set the boundaries and the thresholds and the stuff that you should not overlap with each other. Probably be coached if you want, get a coach to, you know, set things straight together and understand each other outside of private life in the corporate life. But yeah, that, that's pretty much what I would say about this. How would, what are some of the things that you did that you felt like helped you maintain friendships while partnering? Cause I hear that, um, could go really well or really poorly. And I think if you really enjoy these friends in your life, you're the, the, the risk component makes people hesitant to work with their Waited friends. Waited a lot. I mean, with my closest friend, with uh, literally my closest friend, uh, the, my wedding witness, the, the godfather of my kid, you know, our wives, our buddies like hell. So we, we cannot budge that, right? So we took a lot of time, something like six months is to discuss it. Uh, until one day he invited me uh, in a restaurant. This is the way we do it in France. And, and we don't do it like in 20 minutes with one Coke light and a salad. It, it takes two hours, you know? <laughs> and uh, we discussed everything. Like, I'm not your employee. Yeah, you're not my employee. But when we work together, you're not my friend either. No, I'm your CEO, right? Okay, and you know, you said all of this and you verbally say it. You have to verbally say it because the main problem we can face here is not saying it, expecting something. And something else would play out and you would be right. like, ah, it's not what I expected. Yeah, but we, don't, we didn't discuss about it. So how would, I, how would I be supposed to know that? So verbally put everything on the table. That's, that should be enough. The, the next thing is try to know yourself and know the other. So if you are a younger profile, maybe 25 to 30, trust me, you don't know yourself and you don't know the other, right? It, it, it takes time. Uh, yeah, you're talented, you're full of energy and so on. You, you got to pick off your knowledge and stuff, but uh, soft skills take time, most of the time. Uh, so a couch, a coach, sorry, coach, not a couch, a coach can help you. A couch as well, but a coach. <laughs> that, that's the problem with pronunciation <laughs> in French. It's not so easy for us either. So it will tell you, and I would advise to go for ProcessCom. ProcessCom was made by NASA 
um, with a psychologist because the guy were sending uh, Superman, literally, and Superwoman to space. And uh, there's no way you send the cops if something turns wrong, right? So they have to understand each other because there's no plan B. You cannot get, I'm going home. Yeah, sure, Yuri, bye. No. Mm -mm. So they come up with a methodology, a methodological process come. And this is very in, uh, insightful on how to interact with each other. What is my personality? What is the other personality I have in front of me? And where are we uh, most likely to fight or misunderstand each other? And how can I disarm that and uh, pull the, the proper levers so that we put this thing uh, in between us and we can discuss it? And it's really, really important because they can be the greatest strength and they would be the saddest of remorse if you fail mm. to have a proper relation with them. On top of that um, structure that you just suggested, are there specific books that you've read and really enjoyed that help you understand yourself or help you develop soft skills that you really would recommend? I'm not so good at that. My, my coach was the best, mm. really. Uh, he, he's the one that helped me the most. And there are really brilliant guys at, uh, at, and girls at large uh, in this space. But there are too many, many, many people in there. So picking the right one is not easy. Some are really con artists and they don't know shit about anything. <laughs> most of them, actually, I would say 95%. That's uh, my philosophy, are, too. Yeah. And some are just amazing people. Um, you can literate yourself a lot online. There, uh, you can go for those courses of uh, uh, Enneagram, uh, DISC, uh, MBTI, 16 personalities, or, or this one uh, I told you about, like ProcessCom. Um, they have coach that are uh, uh, certified, hmm. so you can go and find a list of people that are reliable. Um, I read some books like Lean Startup, you know, the classical stuff, you know, uh, they are in, they show you ways, right? But I find the most important is uh, the economic education. Because you guys in the US have way more than we have in France or, or pretty much all around the world. And on top of that, you have an instinct for business that we don't have. Hmm. Um, I don't know how to put it, but there's no one American I discussed with that didn't have like a very keen uh, vision of what I was doing and what I could do better and what was wrong, which I didn't find in any other country. So already by default, you have quite, uh, you know, a head start in this. So educate yourself in economy because it's all about this, you know, what's trending, what are the good sectors, uh, what is rising and falling, what are the good methods, um, and then inspire yourself from the one that made a great job in your area. Because it might be a totally different strategy if you're in cybersecurity, if you're in healthcare, if you're creating a SaaS system for selling cars online, whatever. It there's no there's no universal method. So look at what they did, inspire yourself, uh, and check also what made them fail sometime or what is the biggest regrets and remorse. Compile all of this in your mind. Take time. You you cannot rush this. I would say, um, and in the end, the path would be quite clear. Sounds good. Well, I've been very thankful for your time this past hour. I think I've learned a lot and I hope that our guests can learn a lot from this episode as well. I just want to make sure I end all my calls the same way. And that is, what is the best way for our viewers to get in touch with you if that's something they'd like to do? Yeah, if they want to uh, look into our product, it's called CrowdSec. It stands for Crowd Security. 
the goal is to have you know a, a protection of each other so uh, it's a massively multiplayer firewall a kind of ways of firewalls if you want and you can find us at crowdsec it's spelled c-r-o-w-d-s-e-c dot net and uh, the product is for free so you know defend yourself for free sounds good thanks for joining us again today thank you david bye